Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Find Your Finish Line presented by Activize, the official uh, topical pain relief partner of Iron Man. Activize comes in gel, roll-on, and spray. I use the gel all the time. Seems like I'm putting it on all the time. I love it. But you can find it at Ironman.com, at Amazon.com, and at Walmart. So check it out today. This podcast is not only about you being able to find your finish line at a race or an event, but also in life. I'll talk to successful people who have jumped over a lot of hurdles to get to where they are today. Some of them have knocked them down, but they've gotten back up, get back up and, and keep moving forward. One of those is Dee Dee Griesbauer. Dee Dee Griesbauer is my guest today. She's a 16-year professional triathlete. Uh, she's out of Boulder, Colorado, and she is one of my idols. Hello, Dee Dee. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm so excited to be here. When you invited me, I just, it made me giggle. So I'm really happy to be here with you. <laughs> I love giggles. That's great. Well, right away, we have to get it out of the way. Uh, Piper and Charlie, your two dogs are on the outside of your door, you said when we were uh, just starting up and they've got a guest with them. We do. We have a special guest with us for actually quite a long time. Um, we are hosting uh, Maggie Joyce Hedges, who is the uh, Labrador retriever of uh, retired pro Rachel Joyce and her partner, Brett Hedges. They have gone back to England to visit with family and have a bit of holiday. And I, I said to Rachel, I was like, we'll take Maggie. And she said, oh, Didi, but we're going to be gone for so long. And I said, Rachel, taking care of Maggie is somewhat like taking care of a pet rock. Uh, she's a very mellow-tempered lab, and <laughs> she's super easy to take care of. So uh, Rachel thought about it for half a second, and she was like, yeah, you're actually right. Okay, we're, we're okay with it. So um, Rachel and uh, – sorry, Rachel, Maggie and Piper, our older one, were buddies. Rachel used to live in our neighborhood. So uh, uh, Piper and Maggie go way back. Charlie is obviously a new addition to the mix, um, but they're all they're, – they're getting on great. We're two days in, and everybody's good. A little extra dog hair in the I, house, I, but other than that, we're all good. <laughs> I, oh, you're you're only two days in. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to call back in like two weeks and see what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if I'm still married to my husband. He was like, we're taking her for how long? I was like, she's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, good. Dee Dee it's all has good. Dee Dee has an extensive resume, everyone, and a lot of you know about it. Uh, she graduated from Stanford University, was on the swim team there, 10 NCAA All-American honors, a captain of the team that 1992 that won the NC2A championship, uh, longtime pro triathlete under the tutelage of the great Karen Smyers, who uh, we all adore. Uh, nothing like having a mentor like Karen Smyers, huh, Didi? Oh, I literally stepped in it backwards when I got to work with Karen. I, I didn't realize it. I was working on Wall Street at the time, and I had done an Ironman somewhat on a whim and ended up qualifying for the Ironman World Championship. I had raced Ironman Florida, and I finished as the top amateur. Um, and I, I was like, well, I guess I have to go. But I was terrified because I wasn't in my mind, particularly fit at that race. And I thought, I can't go out to Hawaii in this kind of shape. And I had so many questions about the sport, as, as anybody would getting into Ironman racing for the first time. And um, 
of course, I asked a Wall Street contact who had never done an Ironman, but he had been to Hawaii to watch the Ironman. And he became <laughs> my resource. And he's like, ah, I'll tell you everything you need to know. And um, he told me to pick up the phone and call Karen. He's like, you're living in Boston. You've got the greatest resource on Kona living in your own backyard. You need to pick up the phone and call Karen Smyers. And I tell you, the first, my introduction to Ironman was watching the race when Karen won. I had been in business school and I, I was studying and I, I turned on the TV because I was just, I was burnt out. I needed a little break. And I turned on the TV and the Ironman was on. And they were taught, it was this dramatic, they were on the marathon and they were talking about how Karen was so far back and Paula was going to win. And, but all of a sudden Paula started struggling and I was just like, my eyes were enormous. And of course I watched, you know, Karen pass Paula, Paula collapses to the ground, Karen wins. And I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Like not for Paula, obviously it was very <laughs> devastating, but it was such an exciting race that I was like, this is amazing. And so when this guy is suggesting that I call Karen Smyers, like she was up on this pedestal, I was like, I can't call her. So I got her email address and I sent her an email and um, she left at the opportunity to coach me. I'm not sure why, I think because I had that tremendous aerobic engine from all that swimming um, yeah. and she offered to coach me and it was, it was, it, I so lucky, so, so lucky. She's taught me so much and such a good friend and mentor still like to this day, I don't, don't work with her as my coach anymore, but um, just such a good friend and mentor that I can pick up the phone at any point and call her and just talk through something with her. And she's always there. She's great. She's great. Yeah. She's, she's one of the best. There's no doubt. Well, you've won three Ironmans and I've got, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say because the Ironman wins are what, Brazil, UK and Taiwan. And I wasn't at any of them, but I did neither get the was witness. My, neither was my husband, You're, Mike. Neither was my husband. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm right there with Dave. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did get the witness in uh, 2021 last year when you were fifth at Ironman Lake Placid and you had in the second fastest bike split ridden by any woman on that course in the history of, uh, of Lake Placid at four hours and 30 minutes at at 51 years old, uh, that, 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 that to me, was almost like, uh, better than winning the race. You just cranked it out on the bike. What happened out there? You just had one of those days. Yeah, no, the 431 was actually at Cozumel at the end of the year. So different course oh, okay. to Lake Placid. I was fifth at Lake Placid and I think I had the third fastest bike split there because I was racing Lisa Norton yeah. and Heather Jackson. So full respect to them. Uh, still came in fifth in the race, and that was and th that is that was the third time I had raced at Lake Placid, and actually the fastest I'd ever been on the course. And I thought that's pretty good. I'm I'm 51. Like that's not bad. I'm I'm better than I was at 35, which was the first time I raced on the course. So I was sort of inspired by that. And then I went on. I had some race plans at the end of the year that ended up getting canceled. So I ended up jumping into Ironman Cozumel. And I went into Cozumel with a, quite a bit of trepidation because I had raced twice there previously and never found the finish line. <laughs> um, the first wow. time, yeah, the first time I, I, I um, was sort of overcome by the heat. I was not prepared for the heat and humidity at that time of year. Uh, and the second time, I actually had a collision with, a, with an age group athlete at an aid station and hit my head pretty hard and was taken out of the race. So when I went back, I was like, it's either going to be third time's a charm or a three-time loser. So, um, and ended up having one of those days, the conditions in Cozumel were pretty ideal. We didn't have the wind that you can sometimes get there. 
And I had one of those just days where I felt effortless on the bike and it was, it was magical and uh, walked away with the course record. And it was only later I learned, yeah, that was the second fastest time ever ridden by a woman on an Ironman course anywhere. Second to Daniela Reef in Kona. I forget what year in Kona that was that remarkable bike year she had. Um, But again, I was pretty like, wow, I did that. (laughs) That, that is, you know, when I think about it, it's amazing, but it's not because it's DD grease power. Uh, and, and, but I'm, I'm going to step back a second because when I was doing a little research, I found out something about you. I had no idea that as a young adult, you were a member of 4-H, which I love. So you, you did, weren't you 4-H? No. <laughs> Where no? did you that? No. No, I swear. You know who told you know who told me that? I think <gasps> he told me that just to crank me was was Dave Downey. <laughs> he says, "Ask Didi about her 4-H." Okay, we we you and I both old Dave something big time. Oh my god, no, totally big time. Isn't that that's where you like raise pigs and stuff and like farm animals and go show them at shows, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, the 4-H, it stands for a head, heart, hands, and health. I had a friend in it, and and uh, it, it's a great organization. So let's move on. Oh, but, no, I wasn't in 4-H. I was a Girl Scout, though. I did sell, I did set a state record in New Jersey for selling the most boxes of Girl Scout cookies ever by a Girl Scout in 1980 or whatever it was. I sold 325 boxes of cookies all by myself. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That doesn't surprise me. That my mom was a little me. upset because it was a lot for me to go out with my little red wagon and deliver them all. So she had to help me with the car. She wasn't too happy about that. I quit the Girl Scouts <laughs> after that. <laughs> Let's go back, Didi, to your time on Wall Street uh, as a trader. It must seem like light years ago. Uh, you, you were there during 9-11. What do, you, what do you think those years, and we'll talk about 9-11, what do you think those years as a trader on Wall Street taught you? Um, to be calm under pressure. Um, I loved my job. Uh, I was really conflicted actually when Karen, well, I wasn't conflicted immediately. I knew it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to race professionally when Karen suggested that I quit my job and race professionally, but I did love my job. It suited me really well. It was fast paced. I was never bored, super competitive, Um, the lifestyle of a trader, a lot of my business school classmates, I got my MBA at the Wharton school at the university of Pennsylvania. And when I graduated, a lot of my classmates made fun of me. They're like, you just spent two years and a whole lot of money getting an MBA just to become a trader. And I said, by my calculations, it was the most amount of money for the least amount of work. I liked the regular (laughs) schedule that a trader had. I, I would never have to travel for work. I knew that the market closed at 4 p.m. and I could be out living my life by 4.45 and and have some balance in my life. The the hours that I worked were extremely intense and could be extremely stressful. Um, But I I kind of thrived on that. So I I think the one thing that, that my years on Wall Street taught me were really to be calm under pressure because that's a different kind of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people that have been in that situation, and they all say the very same thing. I mean, the pressure is intense, and if you don't handle it, it handles you. Yeah, one of the one of the most stressful times I've ever had, uh, minus 9-11, which you said we'll get to in a minute, but um, I when I was, lived in Boston, so I started my Wall Street career in New York and worked for Lehman Brothers for two years before I, just the New York lifestyle wasn't for me, and 
I had met Dave. I, we had been dating for about 10 minutes and I was like, Hey, do you want to move to Boston? <laughs> He's like, uh, okay. <laughs> this guy I barely knew and we started interviewing for jobs together in Boston. It was crazy. Um, but I was working for That's a mutual crazy. fund company in Boston and I traded the utility fund and uh, traded the utility fund through Enron, which was one of the more stressful um, periods of my career on Wall Street, um, working for a portfolio manager who had a heart of gold, but was so hard. I would like, I loved her and was so also terrified of her. <laughs> um, and she had a longstanding relationship with management and Enron and just couldn't believe what was happening. And it was, it was very stressful. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did love it at the same time. Um, that's what we, that's yeah, what makes yeah. you feel alive, right? Feeling those emotions. Exactly. And, and, uh, bad days, you know, <laughs> the, the old adage about, oh my gosh, I had a bad day, but you seem, you put it into perspective because you were there at nine 11. You actually were listening to traders who were in the towers on the phone, uh, giving, uh, you know, what's going on and all that. And, that must stick with you like like glue when you think about it. But uh, it really changed your perspective on what a bad day is all about. Uh, didn't for it? sure. Um, I mean, sitting there in, in a trading room, there's there's we have screens everywhere and TV monitors everywhere tuned into every major news station. And, and like most people, I think everyone's first reaction was it was a small plane. It was a navigational error. It was, it was something, it, it couldn't have been what it ended up being. And as we watched the news, the second plane hit and actually one of the portfolio managers, oh no, who was an analyst at the time, walked in and literally was white as a ghost and dropped a piece of paper on the floor. It was a plane ticket to be on one of the flights that had flown out of Boston that he was supposed to oh be on gosh. that plane and one of his companies had missed earnings and what we call it had blown up, right? And so he had to stay to manage the news cycle for this company that had missed earnings. So he cancels his flight and was supposed to be on one of those flights. And then again, to just hear the traders in the towers. My first call was to my husband, Dave, who worked across the street from us in the Hancock Tower in Boston, which at the time is the most prominent building in Boston. And, and yeah. I said to him, he worked, he was a, worked a, in financial services as well. He's a, does technology to support traders and portfolio managers. And so he was sitting on a trading desk as well. And I just said, get out, get out of that building. I was like, I don't care if they fire you, get out of that building right now. And, and he left. Um, and, and obviously, yeah, I mean, we both having grown up on the East Coast and spent a couple of years in New York, knew people um, who made it out, knew people who didn't make it out. Uh, my friends at Lehman Brothers, uh, their offices were across the street. They were escorted out of the building to the sights and sounds of people jumping out of the building and having conversations with them. And it, it really did. It, it changed my perspective forever on what's important. And and to that end, when Karen suggested I quit my job and race professionally, I, I mean, it was a couple of years later, but I didn't even think twice. I was like, yes, let's do this. Yeah. 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 That's an experience that we, we all have, but you obviously being in the thick of it all uh, can certainly change one's perspective. What do you think, uh, Didi, has been, you know, if you go back and you look at your career, and your career is still your career, you're still out there pushing it and pounding it, but what do you think over the years has been your number one motivating factor to keep pushing, to keep training, to keep racing? What, 
What is it that drives Dee Dee Griesbauer to be who she is and to keep pushing? Honestly, Mike, it started with just an insane curiosity. When I saw the Iron Man on TV, I, I wondered, I, I thought to myself, could I do that? I had been a collegiate swimmer the summer before business school. I rode my bicycle across the country with a boy that I was trying to impress. Um, that, that, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You're trying to impress some, some guy. And who suggested let's ride across the country? He did. He had just finished his MBA and he had three months off before he had to start his job. And he knew I was athletic and <laughs> I, I didn't own a bike. Like the bike I owned was like my Schwinn that I rode to grammar school. It was like steel sitting in my yeah. parents' garage. And he's like, hey, I'm thinking about riding my bike across the country. Do you want to come? And I just, I said, yes. And I bought a bike and five days later, we flew to Seattle and rode back to the East Coast together. Now, we broke up in Montana. It, it did not work out, the relationship. <laughs> and here's the thing, Mike, he was just too slow. He couldn't keep up. And I just got too frustrated. Uh, we did finish the trip, however. Um, so I had the swimming background. I had somewhat of a cycling background. I knew I could ride long distances. And when I was in business school, my first year at Wharton, I ran the Philadelphia Marathon. So I just had this insane curiosity. Could I do this? And when Karen suggested I race professionally, I thought, well, how would I do as a professional? Could I be good at this? You know, I talked to fellow pros who have this goal. They, they, they think they can and they want to win the Ironman World Championship one day. And it's not that I didn't want to. Like, if it happened, yeah, that would be great. But I never went into that race thinking, I'm going to win this thing. I just wanted to see how good I how good I could be and how I would stack up against the best in the world. And now as I've gotten older, I obviously like I still love the sport. I love the process. I love the lifestyle. I love the people. I love the journey. It has broken my heart and kicked me to the curb 16 ways till next Tuesday. Yeah. But I still love it. And there's days, Mike, I wish I didn't, but I still love it. And so now I'm still driven by this curiosity. I mean, there have been points in my career where people and people who are important, important to me have told me, you should quit. You're not relevant anymore. You're never going to win Kona. And I was like, well, but why does that mean I have to quit? Can I still be good? Can I still factor into races? Can I still prove to other women that you don't have to quit when you turn 40, that you can still be competitive and, and successful past the age of 40? Um, and, and can't I prove to women who are over 50, that you can keep getting better. And I don't care if you're a pro and I don't care if you're racing the Ironman or racing a sprint, you can still get better and, and do things better than you did when you were younger. And I'm curious for myself, what's possible? How do I stack up when I tow a line? I look around at women who are sometimes half my age and I think to myself, can I compete with them? Let's find out, right? On paper, probably not, but we don't race on paper. Yeah, you. It, it's interesting because when you're at a start line, Didi, uh, I've thought about this a few times. Seeing you at a start line, I go, "Well, there's Didi." At the time, you know, maybe you're, you're 49 years old at the time, and then all of a sudden there's a 31 year. I'm introducing a 31 year old, a 33 year old, a 34 year old, and thinking, "What are they thinking? Oh my God, we cannot let Didi Griesbauer beat us today. She's 49 years old, and that's got to be a motivating factor for you too, because." You still go toe to toe with the younger ones. I do, I have t-shirts older than some of the women I compete against. It's it's no <laughs> joke, but I I just I enjoy being out there and honestly, I'm just curious what's possible. And there is a time and it's it's coming where 
my body won't let me compete to the level I want to compete. And I think a lot of people say, well, how can you be excited about a fifth place finish at Ironman Lake Placid? And I, because I beat a lot of really good women who were in the prime of their career. I feel like to a certain extent, I'm still relevant and I'm still, I'm still at my fastest time in Lake Placid, the second fastest bikes would ever ridden by a woman in the same year. I'm still getting better in a lot of ways. I'm not as consistent. And I think it's no secret that she bikes like Tarzan. She runs like Jane. Like I'm not the fastest runner in this sport, but one of these days I'm going to hang in there and I'm going to put together a better marathon than I've shown the last couple of years. And it's going to come together. And Mike, I've been, I think I've missed a Kona slot twice in the last, by one slot twice in the last, oh. well, minus the pandemic. So there's yeah. a possibility I could still qualify for Kona and how insane and somewhat ridiculous would that be? Like, that would be amazing. And to a certain extent too, after every race, I, I think to myself, well, you know, I'm not fighting for the win anymore. And it does, it does weigh on me a little bit, but then I look at the results for my age group. I think I would have won my age group in like Placid by an hour and 20 minutes. So I don't really belong there yet. So I feel like I'm just where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> you, you are where you're supposed to be. You know, uh, Ironman Texas this past April, you didn't have, you know, that's why I, that's why I love that you love the sport so much and you love the profession is because you can get knocked on your ass, but you still love it. And, and yeah. like you mentioned earlier, you sometimes wish you didn't love it so much because it just beats you up. At Ironman Texas, you didn't have the day that you wanted to have. I want to share something with you because I, I went to the finish line after I was announcing down on the waterway. And uh, I had heard that you, you, were, you were out of the race. But then I went to the finish line and Dave, your husband, came sprinting by and, and I wanted to find out. I go, Dave, how's Dave? Uh, later, Mike. <laughs> and I saw the look on his face of concern. I go, Oh my gosh, I hope Didi's okay because you know when someone's a friend and you're you're worried about him, but he had that look of concern. So but it all worked out. You're fine and afterwards we talked, but that must have been a, a hard day, huh? Yeah, it was it's again, it's the nature of sport. I was very well prepared for Ironman Texas. My training had been great. Yeah. Um I was biking super strong. I was running as well as I, better than I ever have um, in training and, and really ready to, to put it together. And you kind of don't realize you don't know until, you know, um, things started coming unglued on the bike a little bit. Um, and I got into T2 and, and I remember someone handed me my transition bag and I stood there and I looked around and I was like, I don't know where to find the change tent. And I, I hit the deck. Like I just lost it. Like I, I lost everything. I, I essentially blacked out and passed out. Um, and there was some concern about what had caused that. And I have had all the medical tests. I'm cleared. My brain is good. I have a brain. My heart is good. It's working well. Like everything's good. I'm healthy. We chalked it up to one of those days. I, again, and after all of my years in the sport, I was not prepared for the heat and humidity. I think my nutrition was a bit sloppy on the day. I think I had made some scheduling errors. We had gone straight from a training camp into the race. And I just don't think I had enough restorative time, which at my age, I need a little bit of restorative time every now and then. And I think I went in on an empty tank and you can't race an Ironman on an empty tank. And I, I paid the price for it, but I, you feel really badly because I know like my coach, Julie Dibbins was there. She was extremely concerned. I, I got a lot of calls and, and messages from friends. You, a lot of my friends at Ironman reached out to me and, and, 
you feel bad that you put your friends and your support group in that kind of stress um, from just doing something that you love. Um, yeah, so definitely not my day, but gosh, it just makes me want to get up and do it better the next time and 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 correct those mistakes. And that's the thing with Ironman. I think anybody out there that walks away from an Ironman race and says, I just had the perfect race, dude, mic drop and walk away because you're never going to get it again. Like that's part of what I love about the sport is that we're always learning. You don't learn as much, Mike, from the good days. I've had the privilege of winning three Ironman races and what a thrill that is. But it's like you win and you celebrate and you don't really digest it. When you have a day like I had at Ironman Texas, I have spent time every single day going through that race and figuring out what I can do better and what I can you know, what can make me better the next time and smarter the next time and, and to avoid that happening. And so I've, I've learned a lot from the setbacks and I've had quite a few, that's just one. There've been a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, the experience of the experience is always something that educates each and every one of us. And, and over the years, you've, you've probably adjusted, you know, your workouts and your racing and specifically because I get a lot of Athletes, obviously, I talk to that, oh, my gosh, I've got these nagging injuries. But the younger ones don't seem to listen to those injuries. But the ones with more knowledge and the older ones seems to listen to them. Do you look at your injuries in a little different fashion than you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Well, I had a big, I mean, I'm just going to knock on a little bit of wood right now um, because I'm about, I don't know, four weeks out from an Ironman, so we don't want to tempt fate. But... (laughs) Yeah. I went through I went through a period um 20 well starting 16? I had a bad crash in 2011 I believe it was at Ironman Frankfurt broke a bunch of bones and in the the wake of that I had a lot of injuries because I came back too quickly and that was something I learned the hard way you know you you have an injury you have a setback and you have all this enthusiasm Nothing makes you love, um, you know, your sport more than not being able to do it, right? So as soon as I was clear to get back to running and training full blast, I was training full blast. I did not, I, I wanted to put the pedal all the way to the floor and come back. I think my crash was in July and I was prepared to race Ironman Melbourne at the start of like March the next year. And it was just for the extent of my injuries, it was way too aggressive. So you learn. So now every time I've been injured subsequently, I try to be a little bit more patient, listen to my body. But then in 2016, I went through a series of injuries that seemingly unrelated. It was a, it was a hamstring on one side. It was an Achilles on the other. It was a hip on the, it, it, all of these injuries just kept coming and kept coming. And, and I couldn't find a reason for it. And, and I met with a doctor who did a bunch of really sort of extensive and expensive tests and she sat me down and she said, Dee, Dee, I don't know how to say this other than your body is eating itself. <laughs> She's like, you are getting injured because I just wasn't fueling properly. And it's it wasn't like I wasn't eating enough. I wasn't eating a good variety. I wasn't, I just, I wasn't, I was sloppy about my nutrition. And the fact that I had gotten that far through my career with crap nutrition habits um, is amazing. And I started working, well, I've worked with a lot of different nutritionists, but finally have met one that it really is working for me. And so just those little details, right? I mean, you hear it all the time. Yes, we need to be fit. We need to train hard, but it's those little details at the top of the pyramid, your mobility, your strength training, your nutrition, your recovery, your restoration. And and through my injuries, I have learned that those things 
should be at the bottom of the pyramid because they are critically important so that you can do the training and stay healthy to get to, to get to where you want to be. Yeah. And that, that's the same if you're a 20 year old triathlete, uh, endurance athlete, 30 year old, 40, 50 year old. And I think a lot of age groupers now are taking that to heart at younger ages, which is good because I think they'll find who knows uh, uh, of a 25 year old that, you know, does an Ironman, what they're going to be like at 45, if they do what they're supposed to do. We could, we could have people out there at 55, 60 years old competing fast and yeah. well, which we yeah. still do. So yeah. it's great. Let's talk about, let's talk about coaching. Coaching is always a, a topic, especially for age groupers. Do I need a coach? The whole deal. I, I can do it myself and I'm self-disciplined and on and on and on. But your coach, Julie Dibbins, uh, who I adore, she, she's, Dibbs is the greatest. But uh, tell us about your uh, athlete-coach relationship and why you feel that it's, that it's so good for you. You know, it's funny because Julie and I have recently had a conversation that, you know, I've been with her for six, almost seven years now. Um, and you get to that point with a coach and she's like, I don't, she's like, I really don't have anything left to teach you, but... I still need a coach because she is able to see things that I can't, right? I get down in the weeds and, and I want to put my head down and work, 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 work. She's the one that's got to fly up at 30,000 feet and be like, yeah, no, even with all my experience, I'm still making mistakes. And so having a coach who will monitor that, like in the day to day, I get up, I get the job done. She writes a great program. It works for me. It gets me fit. It makes me strong. You know, that part of it we've got. It's it's the mistakes when I don't pay attention to the little details that I think she's got to be there monitoring. So I'm on a pretty long leash. She doesn't have to babysit me, so to speak, anymore. I know the work that needs to get done and I'm, I'm willing to do it. I've always been willing to do the work. Um, it's the reminder of the little things, I think, that she that like plays such an important role, you know, to me. And as I coach, um, I actually work for Julie under her coaching umbrella. Um, and we all get together um, every two weeks and have a call. And I learn from the other coaches and struggles they're having with their athletes or successes that they're having with their athletes. So working with Julie is also making me a better coach um, to the athletes that, that I coach. And so um, plus she rides the bike like I mean, she's been retired from the sport for a long time, but man, try holding her wheel. It's going to make you fit. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah. That's always a good factor, yeah. you know? <laughs> she's out there grinding with us all the time. And, and the, what the day, like I said, the day I drop Julie on the bike, mic drop, I'm out of here because it's never going to happen again. <laughs> Hold on, everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. I just finished up a run and Activite's the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman keeps me going. Don't let strain and pain keep you from your training, keep you from finding your finish line. Activite's comes in three different applications, roll-on, spray, and gel. Check out all the products on Amazon.com, at Walmart, and Ironman.com, and have Activite's help you find your finish line. 
Well, we're talking with Dee Dee Griesbauer, 52-year-old professional triathlete, got a big race in Lake, Pla Lake Placid, right? Yeah, Lake Placid, yeah. Yeah, Lake Placid. I can't wait to see you there. But uh, what, what does an age grouper, what should they look for when they're looking for a coach, Dee Dee? I think it, I think it depends on the age grouper and I think it depends on the level of experience and the type of personality. Um, you know, do you need a lot of communication? Do you need, you know, that education in that you're a real beginner and you need someone to be completely involved in every step and stage of the process? Um, are you a more experienced athlete and you just need help with time management? Um, you're balancing your job and your family and you don't have, 20 hours a week to train, you're limited to 10 hours a week, finding a coach that's going to work within your schedule and, and customize to your, your lifestyle and what is going to work for you. Um, and, and I think it's important that you find a coach and that a coach works with athletes that they, they like. I think as a coach, you, you want someone who respects your goals and it takes your goals on as their own and is as passionate about your goals as, as they, you know, as if they were their own. Um, I think all of those things are extremely important. Um, there's a lot of different styles of coaching I've learned. Uh, people who are data driven, they're all about the number, the number, the number. There are people that don't use numbers at all, right? So if you're someone who's quantitative, someone that says, I want you to ride this you know, at a moderate effort, you're like, well, what does that mean? What, what number does that equate to? You're probably not going to get along very well. So finding someone that speaks your language, whether it's quantitative, qualitative, um, someone that communicates the way that you like to communicate. Do you want phone calls? Do you not have time for that? You just want an email once a week. Like there are so many options out there for coaches that finding the right yeah. fit for you in what, you know, you need. And if you don't know what you need, be willing to have that conversation with a coach and say, this is where I'm at at my career. How do you think I'm going to get better? I think it's important for a coach to have a plan of how they're going to help you get better before you hire them. I think that's great advice. And, and I, I'm a proponent that everybody should have a coach of some type of some, uh, ability to be able to, to, uh, help mentor your, you know, your, your progress through triathlon. Cause you don't want to, you don't want to go backwards. You want to get better every day. Uh, Didi, let's talk about our current crop of professional athletes who you're among. Uh, the, the male and female pros that are out there. Does it surprise you that we're starting to see some, some barriers being knocked down by this younger crop of pros that are out there? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. I think we've seen it. We've seen it all along. Um, we saw Paula Newby Frazier, who people are like, how can you win that many times, you know, at a world championship? How can you be that dominant? We we had a Natasha Bodman. How can she ride a bike and run that fast off? We had a Chrissy Wellington. We've had these sort of barrier breakers. And I think it's true. Like you find one person who puts it on the line and, and breaks that barrier. And everyone else is like, oh. Well, I can do that too. You know, you have Marina Carfrey run 250 off the bike in Kona and all of a sudden yeah. all the women are like, well, how did she do that? How do I get myself to do that? And now you've got to run sub three hours to be competitive, right? Running three hours off the bike. Yeah, it's good. It's not great. You've, you know, we watched um, Laura Phillip run 240 something in um, Hamburg. And that's nuts. But the women are watching and they're saying, okay, 
if you can do that, I can do better. And, and I think it just takes one to prove that it can be done. And then everyone else gets to work and says, how am I going to, how am I going to get that done? So it, it, it's shocking to me that they can do that because that's definitely <laughs> like, I watched Laura Phillip. I was like, I've had marathons that are a full hour slower than that. <laughs> like that's <laughs> insane <laughs> that people can run that fast. Uh, that can, you know, hold that power that are just taking the sport to the next level. Um, but it's, it's just the evolution. It's been happening all along and you get one, you know, you get one person that does it and then all of a sudden the floodgates open and, and dozens of people seem like they can do it. And now we're at a new level. Um, and it's, it's super exciting. It's depressing because it just means I'm slipping off the back of the plate, but Hey, you know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember Didi. I remember, uh, when I was working Ironman Australia years ago and Lori Bowden, uh, we were getting her splits during the day and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to break three hours. Yeah. And, and it was almost unheard of. And she broke three hours and, and it was just like, oh, we just, we saw a history being made. Then all of a sudden women were breaking three hours. Yep. And I think you're right. Once that barrier comes down, the old adage of the four minute mile type thing, once the barrier comes down, people go, I can, I can do that too. Uh, do you think the attitude... And the way the professional uh, triathletes today uh, approach the sport is, uh, you know, with all the social media and they want to be out there. And you think that that approach to, to uh, being a pro triathlete is so much different that it's better or worse? It's definitely out of my comfort zone. I'm not someone who... Um wants to live my life on social media. Um, it, it takes, I think it takes a certain personality to, to want to live that way. Cause when you put things out there, you have to expect it's going to come back to you and it's not all going to be positive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's different. I think that's difficult. Is it raising the level of attention to the sport or is there more for the people that were already in the sport just to watch? I don't know that it's necessarily raising the profile of the sport. I don't think you're getting, random people to follow, I don't know, people that are very vocal on social media, um, that's drawing them into the sport. I think you're just getting people that were already passionate about the sport, you know, following the people that are, you know, making a, a presence there. I think there's a lot of education that can happen, um, through social media and people sharing their experiences and how they're doing great things. I think, you know, Laura Phillip is, is definitely breaking barriers with how she structures her, her training, um, as a female athlete. And I think that's got a lot of people thinking, oh, well, how do I incorporate that into, into my training? And there's a lot that can be learned. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of social media. Um, I wish I was better at it and could use it more to my advantage, but I'm just old school. I'd like to go about my job and, and let my results, um, speak for themselves, um, rather than kind of blowing up social media over it. But, I see what it has done for some athletes in the sport. And, um, you know, that's positive. I'm not going to say that, you know, getting athletes sponsorship and whatnot is, is a bad thing. And if that's how they're going about it in this day and age, then, then so be it. But I'd like to see it be more productive in terms of educating fellow athletes as to, you know, how they're doing what they're doing, um, because that can be more useful than just, I don't know, jabbering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear, I, I hear you. I hear you. Didi, how do you, how do you think our sport's doing overall? I, I mean, you know, there's so many different factions to it now. And 
uh, different organizations putting on different types of events. How do you think the sport's doing? I mean, it's growing and I love to see the number of races increasing. I love to see um, new races coming on board. I like that there are opportunities for athletes to race in, in different venues. Part of my concern with that is over racing. Um, seeing athletes now, and again, I don't know if this is me, but seeing athletes race five, six, seven Ironmans in a year, that just, to me, that doesn't seem sustainable. And for someone who's lived a career of relative longevity, I don't know if I had raced with that kind of volume, if I'd be around, we do see a lot of younger athletes getting really injured. Is that because they're, you know, they're racing so much, there is pressure to race. There are some really impressive financial opportunities from racing like that. I just don't know how sustainable it is, which maybe isn't the problem because maybe they make a big splash and they make a tremendous amount right. of money that they can retire from sport sooner and feel satisfied and satiated. But what's coming up behind them? How's that developing the new younger athletes? Particularly, I look at long course athletes in the U.S., on the women's side, and I feel like there's a void. I don't know where what has happened to American long course athletes. You know, you look at the at the start list from St. George, the World Championship there, and you've got Heather Jackson, who's still racing. She's in the prime of her career, but you've got Lindsay Corbin, who's probably not going to be racing very much longer. Um, Meredith Kessler, who didn't start in the race, but she's over 40. A lot of the women that were qualified for that race, they're not going to be around much longer. And I don't know, I don't see who's coming up behind them. So while there are opportunities to race and money to be made, I feel like we're falling short on developing the younger athlete and giving them the opportunity to race and to develop into the pros of, of tomorrow, to the Heather Jacksons of tomorrow and the Lindsay Corbins of tomorrow. I don't see that stable of athletes coming coming through. And that's that concerns me a little bit. But certainly the opportunity to race more venues, race different organizations. Um, I, I'm not going to argue that, that that's a bad thing. I actually had this conversation with my husband, who's a golf fan, and we were talking about live, right? Yeah. And, and my point was, hey, right, if it's giving them access to more tournaments and more prize money, I'm not going to argue that that's a bad thing. Now, obviously, there's the moral issue behind lift golf and, and who's funding it and, and that sort of thing. But I think the opportunities to race are great. I just, I hope that it's sustainable. Some of these newer race organizations, we've seen that they're not sustainable, maybe because they're throwing so much money so fast and then they lose interest and they move on. Um, so I think managing growth is something that Ironman has done tremendously well. The, the business model is sustainable um, or it appears to be sustainable because it's been around a while and has lasted, outlasted a lot of other organizations that have come and gone to try to make a splash. They make a splash, but it's not sustainable. So I like that there's, you know, dynamic race opportunities. Um, I'd like to see them sustainable and I'd like to see our sport do a better job with developing younger athletes into successful long course athletes. No, I, you know, your plate your plate is full. Yo, you're a pro triathlete training for an upcoming Ironman. You coach with with Julie. You you help the team management with Karen Smyers on uh, Team Cycle. And oh yeah, yeah. you co-host the Ironman Live broadcast. 
How the hell do you do it? I mean, well, you, you got to go out and put in your miles and everything, but you have so much on your plate and you're, you know, you've been called Ano, you've called yourself Ano, like all, oh, but, but is it because you're so organized or you just don't feel fulfilled unless your plate is absolutely full? Um, I wish actually sometimes my plate was a little less full. I think that gets me into trouble sometimes that I'm not, I, I don't, as a professional athlete, I'm not making myself the priority because I do have a lot of my, on my plate. Um, and I, it's something I'm working on to, to make myself more of a priority rather than some of the other things on my plate, but they're all so important to me and so exciting to me. Like I love being a part of the Ironman commentary team and selfishly, it makes me a better athlete. I study the best athletes in our sport every yeah. time I'm on a microphone and I learn from watching these races unfold and I get to use that in my own racing. So I, I see, I see tremendous opportunity there. Plus I love just sharing my love of the sport with people. I want people to love this sport as much as, as I do. Um, my coaching, I really love helping athletes. I, I do. I'm one of those coaches that takes their goals on as my own and really truly thrives on seeing them succeed. Um, you know, the EDP, that's one of the things the Team Psycho EDP that Karen Smyers and I manage, co-manage, it's giving opportunity to up-and-coming pros at the the Olympic distance, kids coming out of college with Olympic dreams and college-sized bank accounts that don't have money to pay a coach, buy a bike, uh, fly to races to accumulate points to get themselves to a point where you know, they can, they can, you know, fly and be free and, and support themselves as professionals. So it's all really, Im I feel like important work that I'm doing. Uh, part of it is my trader mentality. I'm, I literally, I'm very efficient with time. I am like, I'm like a laxative, Mike, I get done. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had anybody tell me they're like a laxative. Now you've got to explain that. I get poop. I get poop done. I get poop done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Well, you know, you do a fantastic job on the co-hosting with the live broadcast, the Ironman broadcast. When I'm when I'm at a race and I'm announcing it and it's on, I'm listening to you guys because I find tidbits out about a pro. I go, I didn't know that about them. Then I tell the crowd and we work off each other. But I I have to say, how the heck? Do you, you, you work with Michael Lovato, uh, Chris, Chris Lie I mean, with Matt Lieto, Greg Welch, yep. uh, Lieto, and Greg Welch. How the hell do you get a word in edgewise with those guys? <laughs> well, it's perfect. I guess I just, I let them go. They, they, they carry the conversation. They are on, I just get to raise my hand when I feel like I have something smart to say and interject <laughs> and then just throw right back to them and they just carry the air. No, they're great. I have a great, great team. I, these people, our team at, at BCC, um, our team at Ironman, um, th they're so great to work with. My, my co-hosts on every show, it's great conversation. Like it, we just enjoy, all of us are so passionate and just really enjoy talking about sports, yeah. cheering the athletes. Um, we live every second with those athletes out on the course. And when someone drops a bottle or starts cramping, when Lionel starts vomiting at Ironman Coeur d'Alene, we're literally like, oh my gosh, oh my I gosh. Know. The emotion is just, it's so much. And and I'm so lucky to get to do it. When, I, when they approached me to do it, I was a little like, I don't know if I'm going to be very good at that, really. 
And once I got into it, and again, I'm only as good as the people that I'm working with and, and the ability to just have a conversation about a sport we all love. I, I'm just, I'm lucky. I'm really, really lucky to get to do it. Well, Didi, your passion, your passion speaks volumes and, and we hear that and uh, that, that's what it's all about. So you, it, it, you do a fantastic job. Now, uh, you know, relationships are everything in life. We know that. And over the years, you know, I've had the uh, opportunity to observe and witness the relationship you have with Dave, your husband. How has, how has that made you help make you who you are today and, and what you've been, you know, that anything's possible in your life with your great relationship with Dave? Uh, the poor guy, like he, he's like the MVP. <laughs> no, literally he, I'm, first of all, I'm the worst wife ever. I don't cook. I suck at laundry. Like the, the whites become colors and the colors become whites. Like I, I, my responsibilities are the dogs. Like that's, he's like, look, let me just do everything else. He's like, you're useless. And I am, I am totally useless when it comes to like running a household together with him. He, he's amazing. Plus I feel really bad for him because when we got married, I was an overpaid, underworked Wall Street trader. Like I had a good job. I had a good salary. My life just was not that difficult. And on a dime, I flipped and I became an overworked, underpaid professional triathlete. And I tell you, Mike, he never batted an eye. My conversation with him, Karen and I were out training one evening together and she suggested that I quit my job and race professionally. And I like drove home giggling the entire time, just so excited about doing this. And I had the conversation with Dave when I got home and I said, I tried to play it light. Like I wasn't already decided that I was going to do it because I wanted him to be part of the conversation. But I said, I was like, Karen, some <laughs> craziest thing. She said, I should quit my job and race professionally. And he looked at me straight in the eye, Mike. And he said, if you don't go in and quit your job tomorrow, I'm going to quit it for you. He never batted an eye. Now, granted, at the wow. time, we thought it was going to be for a year or two. We didn't know that it would last the right. 18 or whatever, <laughs> however many years it's been. It's been a lot of years. March 15th, 2005 was my last day of work. Um, and he's been there. He's been there through all of it. Unfortunately, as I said, he's never been at one of my Ironman wins. I traveled to those races by myself, but um, he's been through you know some of the top 10 finishes in Kona. He's been through the Races where I've been pulled off the course in a stretcher. Um, he's been there through all of it and literally has never batted an eye. And and I I owe so much, I said, to, to Karen Smyers for being such a great mentor. I owe so much to Julie Dibbins for being my coach and support now. I owe so much times a thousand to my husband who day in and day out is there doing the laundry and cooking my dinner because I, I'm pathetic. I'm useless. Uh, all I have to do is walk the dog, but he's, he's a tremendous support. Now, some people say it works out okay for him because when I go out to do a five hour ride, he just goes out and plays 36 holes of golf and doesn't have someone at home saying, where have you been? Just means I can ride longer and he can play more golf. So we we're we're well balanced in that regard. So I'm that, very, that, very that's lucky. A good, is, uh, is Dave going to be in Lake Placid? He will be in Lake Placid, yes. All right, good, good. He and I can pal around while you're out there working. How's that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Although I do think I've only been on the other side of it one time. Dave raced Ironman Lake Placid. I think it was in 2000, might have been 2013. I don't remember what year, 13 or 14. Um, 
And, and so I've only been on the other side of it once, but I remember at the end of that day, as as the supporter, as the Sherpa, I was bloody exhausted. It's hard. You're beat up. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's stressful. You worry about them out there all day. So yeah, I think honestly, some days when I'm out there racing, I think I've got the easier end of it. He just stands there with the tracker. He's like, where is she? Why isn't her dot moving? <laughs> <laughs> Why is your dot not moving? <laughs> I know it's when I see uh, spectators at the finish line, and I go, "Hey, how many are out there waiting for their, you know, family and friends and loved ones?" And everybody puts their hands up, and the looks on their faces, like, "Where are they at?" You know, and I tell them, "Check out the tracker. You can find yeah. out where they." But it's uh, it's a stressful day for the for the Sherpas for sure. Didi, you know the. The first few races this year were interesting because uh, I, I just didn't think age group athletes were as well prepared because with the pandemic and the deferrals and they were going to do this race and that race and all of a sudden they find themselves in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, any advice you have for them continuing through the year on their training and racing that you can give them? I tell my clients all the time, and it was really hard with the pandemic, and I know that athletes were frustrated because races were canceled, and then the options that they had to roll those entries to different venues weren't the venues they wanted to go to, and it it was a really hard time for everybody. It, it was a really hard time for Ironman. I don't think the athletes realize how much everyone at Ironman wants these races to happen. Nobody wants races canceled. No one wants you to have to go to a race that was third on your list of choices. Everyone wants you to go to the venue where you want to go. And we all were just doing the best that we could with, with what we had. And, and hopefully God willing, those days are behind us and we can just move forward and look forward. But my best advice to athletes is pick a venue that it excites you because that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. If you, if you're not excited when that alarm goes off at, you know, five, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning for you to go do your training session before you go on to your work and your busy day, if you're not excited about that trip that you're taking to Lake Placid or wherever it is that you're racing, you got to pick something that really excites you um, and, and pick a course that suits you. Pick a course that suits your strengths. If you're not the world's best swimmer, make sure you're getting yourself to a race where you're probably going to be in a wetsuit because that's going to suit you. Don't go to a, a choppy ocean swim. Choose a lake-based swim. Um, choose a course that's going to suit your strengths uh, and, and enable you to be um, successful. And, and most of all, just enjoy the opportunity that Mike, we get to be out there doing this. They're like, yeah. there are worse things that we could be doing with our lives. And this is just a gift and it's a joy and it's why we do it. it it's why the age groupers do it, right? It's the distraction from their lives, which are hard and stressful and work. And it's a hobby. It's a joy. It's a gift. And even for the professionals, that's something I want to shake the pros that have never had a job. I'm like, you guys don't know how good you have it doing this. The other side is not that much fun. So enjoy the heck out of it because we don't get to do it forever. Um, and we're lucky to be doing it. And even if you're not doing it on the course of your first choosing, you're still out there doing it with this great Ironman family. And, and I just think it's, it's a great opportunity and it's a, it's a great sport. That, uh, fantastic advice, Didi. So the last question on find your finish line, I call it tri-table racing. It comes out of, I've got friends that race the Baja 1000 uh, down in uh, Baja, Mexico. And afterwards, all the racers get together and sit around the table and they, they call it table racing, reminiscing about the race, good and bad. So tri-table racing, pick any race of your whole career. 
uh, good or bad, and reminisce with us of a memory you have of, of that event? Oh, my gosh. Oh, Mike, there's so you, many. You can go anywhere. Go anywhere. Um, I will say the bad. There's, there's a, there's good and bad. Um, the bad, I raced in Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 2015 and I had a collision with a vehicle, um, a local vehicle. I was taken off the course, uh, wasn't able to finish oh the race. Oh my gosh. I remember that. Oh my, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. It was, it was, it was dreadful. And it was, we were on, the pros were on points and that I like, I still was right. under pressure to get the number of points and I had broken bones and my bike was broken and the whole thing was a disaster. And it, it was awful. And we went back to our accommodation. Like we finally got out of the hospital. We collected my bike. We finally got back to our hotel and I walked in past the front desk and they're like, I'm in a sling and I'm limping and bloody. And they're like, what happened to you? And I was like, Oh, it's just not my day out there. I'll be gosh darn Mike. If 30 minutes later, the front desk attendant knocked on our door, had a basket of snacks, fruits, cheeses, a bottle of wine, and he's like, I'm just really sorry about your day. And I was like, this community, like the communities that we go to, like yeah. Coeur d'Alene will always have a special place in my heart because of that one hotel employee who literally was like, hey, watch the desk. I'm going to run out to the store and came back and just made my day a little bit better. Um, and it was a terrible, terrible day that ended up making me just love these venues that we get to go to. It was it was one of the most powerful um, bad days turned good. I think I've experienced in my Ironman racing. Um, my best days, honestly, it's, it's really hard to pick. I have so much appreciation just for this entire journey because I, I, I just, I never thought it would happen. It, it just seemed to be so random how it all sort of came together. And the fact that I chose to do an Ironman because I saw it on TV and then I qualified for Kona and I met Karen Smyers and I've met so many wonderful people and have really turned a passion into a career that I really hope to be a part of the Ironman family going forward, whether I'm racing or not, just to continue this career with this wonderful sport that I've, I've, I've fallen in love with. There's just, there's too many great memories and too many great friends to pick just one. It's the whole experience has been beyond my wildest dreams and expectations. Well, Didi, you are one of the classiest people in our sport uh, and have been for a long time. And, and this sport is much better off because you are in it, because you're coaching, because you're racing still, uh, mentoring. And uh, I, I appreciate that more than anybody because I get to see you a lot of times at races. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for being on the podcast. This was, I, I enjoyed this immensely. I, I could go on for another hour. <laughs> We will in Lake Placid and we'll do it over some adult beverages post-race. Done deal. <laughs> I'm telling you. And Dave will buy. Okay. Yes. 100%. 100%. We're going to, we're going to come, we're going to get this done in Lake Placid. We are just going to, we're going to continue the conversation there because it's a good one and, and your history and legacy in the sport. And I tell you, it, it is motivation for me when I'm out there. Like I will tell myself, just get to the finish line where Mike can call you in. Just get to Mike. Get to Mike. Don't tell my husband I said that. Just get to Mike Riley. <laughs> oh, thank you, Didi. Thank you again for being on Find Your Finish Line. Uh, it was a pure joy and pleasure. 
And thank you, everybody, for listening to another edition presented by Activize, the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman, where you can get it on Amazon, Ironman.com, and at Walmart. So if you enjoyed the show, subscribe and become notified of upcoming shows and, and leave us a review if you would. We'd love to hear how we're doing. So keep in mind, everybody, each and every day, be the cause of your own great experiences. They will always get you to the finish line. My warmest aloha.